0: You just got to work your ass off. I don't know anyone very successful who hasn't, who A, doesn't have some talent, some level of talent, but that's not the differentiating feature. It's grit and working your ass off. So I have a lot of balance in my life now because I had none
1: when I was in my 20s and 30s. What's up, everyone? Welcome to Suiting Up Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Rabel, professional lacrosse player in New York and with Team USA. And on this show, my job is to converse with high-performance athletes, entrepreneurs, and entertainers with a role to unpack their respective keys to success and the psychology around it. Today's guest is a favorite. In fact, if at least over the last couple of years you were to ask me, if given the chance, Paul, you could bring any three people to dinner, who would they be? Without a doubt, my guest today would be one of them. Have you ever thought about who you'd bring to dinner? He's a world renowned entrepreneur. He's a professor and entertainer. However, what I enjoy most about my guest are his soft skills, those of which include honesty, empathy, vulnerability, and humor. On October 3rd, he released his first book called The Four, the hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. And on today's show, you'll not only learn fascinating intel about how the four largest companies in the world control our mobile devices, but how they're only growing, and what roles they plan on playing in sports. Between broadcasting, manufacturing, and retail, our guest actually rode at UCLA. Trust me. This show is one for the ages. I can almost guarantee you'll start following him across all social media and every medium he and his businesses are on. Enjoy this business person who I greatly admire. His name is Scott Galloway or via his Twitter handle at Prof Galloway. Our show sponsor is a timely one. Very few of us get weekly access to a business person with the horsepower and teachability of Scott Galloway. Now, do we? Frankly, only those taking his brand management course at NYU Stern or those who are lucky enough to work for L2 do. But here's a solution worth checking out. With over 3 million members and more than 17,000 classes, Skillshare is the Netflix for online learning. You can take classes in graphic design, DSLR photography, social media marketing, digital illustration, and much, much more. Skillshare classes are taught by industry experts and experienced professionals, which is perfect if you're looking to build your career or start the side hustle of your dreams. Mine is entrepreneurship and... Full disclosure, I've been a Skillshare subscriber for three years. I've taken classes on brand strategy to business planning, accounting, which I'm very bad at. Shout out Mark Lichtenberg, who's actually my CPA if he's listening to the podcast. I've taken a class on earned media and marketing, which Scott and I talk about on the show, even calligraphy. Skillshare is giving my listeners a one-month free trial of unlimited access to over 17,000 classes. It's a really great deal, everyone. Go to Skillshare.com forward slash Rabel to start your free month today. That's Skillshare.com forward slash R-A-B-I-L. So we are in beautiful New York City, and I'm sitting next to a man who I often reference across all of my social media mainly for his thought leadership and innovation. Uh, he's a multiple-time entrepreneur. His name's Scott Galloway. We're going to talk about some of his companies. Uh, he's also a newly minted author of the book called The Four, which we'll dive into a bit on the show. He's a professor at NYU Stern mm-hmm. and YouTuber. Yep, that's right. <laughs> yeah, YouTuber. Uh, is, is, YouTube is how I found out about Scott a few years ago. He does a number of other things. He sits on a bunch of boards, and he consults, and he's a father. Um, and the importance of, of which you pursue your life is probably um, for or latter first all the way through the former And yep. I know because you talk about it a lot on your newsletter um, so a man that wears many hats yeah. metaphorically and and literally yep when you do these keynote speeches yep. at these big business tech conferences. Yep. You can be caught in an outfit. Yeah, dress and drag. Yeah, <laughs> a yeah. feather cap. Everyone's got to have hobbies. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but right now, no hat, yep. t-shirt, jeans. That's it. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so when I, when I first watched you on YouTube, it was at the DLD conference. Oh, yeah. And you talked about the Four Horsemen. Yeah. And that video went viral. Yep. And, uh, and it was amazing you were able to distill their powers down um, and add levity over the course of just 15 minutes and I remember thinking, like, oh, my gosh, I learned so much. I learned more than I did here. And no disrespect to my teacher at Hopkins, it was primarily because I, I put minimal effort yeah, through too. my educational yeah. system. But yeah. I learned more in that 15-minute video, and then I went on to watch it time and time again. Um, L2, which is the, the company that you're leading, yep. you sold this past year to Gartner. Congratulations Thanks on so that. very much. And, uh, and, and you started a series yep. on YouTube called Winners and Losers, and you forecast uh, the winners of the week or, or the future winners and, yep. and, and the losers in tech and business. Um, and, and L2 is your business intelligence firm that benchmarks the digital performance of consumer brands. So L2 is an accidental business. My day job is I'm on the faculty at NYU,
0: where I teach digital marketing and brand strategy. And you can't get very far in academia without doing research. And I decided in 2010 that the research I wanted to do that foot to my background was around uh, e-commerce and digital competence. So architected an algorithm of 1,250 data points across four dimensions, site, digital marketing, social, and mobile, and then applied those data points to the 100 biggest brands in luxury and then ranked them all from first to last or first to 100th and then published the research thinking it would be maybe get up in an academic journal. And about a third of the companies called us within 48 hours and said, who are you and why are you doing this? So I recognized there was a commercial opportunity. And in exchange for some stock in the company, got rights to the intellectual property from NYU. And that was really the birth of L2. And now L2 is a subscription business intelligence firm that basically benchmarks a company's digital competence so they can figure out where they're strong, where they're weak, and how they can get better faster. And now we work with 28 or 30 of the 100 largest consumer brands in the
1: world. So uh, accidental business. Yeah, with winners and losers... You have been able to talk about business and analytics, which can be pretty heady, and and present it in video form that that's short and also really entertaining. Thanks. Uh, was, was that your masterpiece?
0: No, the secret sauce, I think, of, of winners and losers is uh, we have a great production team, and Catherine Dillon, my partner here, one of my partners here, she's also a professor at the Tisch School, and she's arguably one of the most... Accomplish well-respected people in sort of visual design or visual voice, and how to bring um, data to life. And we've overinvested. One of the things I think any business has to do is you have to say, "All right, where are we going to overinvest? What is going to what foot are we going to lead with?" And what we wanted to do was combine the rigor of an academic institution. We collect a great deal of data. We spend a lot of time really trying to be thoughtful and analytical and rigorous about this stuff. But then we have a 14-person creative team of animators and designers, copywriters, sound engineers. And we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how we can make this data uh, sing, how we make it beautiful. And it's not only something that gives us, I think, competitive advantage in the marketplace, but it gives us a lot of a joy. We really, we really like this stuff. Yeah. So I think the secret sauce of L2 in general and um, – Winners and losers is really the creative team who, who make the make the data just more more digestible, if you will.
1: And creative can be really expensive. All that stuff yeah. that you mentioned, uh, traditional CFOs have trouble wrapping their heads around yeah. their return on investment yeah. for that. And especially, you know, starting the company in 2010, yeah. um, and the more recent. YouTube channel, how do you yeah. justify that sure. type of spend?
0: Sure. So, uh, Paul, I know you talk a lot about entrepreneurship, so I'll be you know, very forthcoming. I've been an entrepreneur. I've started nine companies. When I started L2, I capitalized it with about a million dollars of my own money. And I'm more fortunate than most entrepreneurs. I'd had some, some modest success in the 90s in the internet generation. So I was able to do the seed round myself. But as the CEO and sole shareholder, I get to make the decisions around capital allocation. Uh, it, that is until we uh, brought venture capitalists on board. But I've always felt that, um, you know, aesthetics, if you will, are, and creative are a huge ROI business. And that is, especially in our business where you're competing with McKinsey or Accenture, you go to their websites, They just this, this, this content kind of brightens up a room by leaving it. You know, they'd put these guys in a conference room, behind, and behind them would be the Bade Bridge in San Francisco, which was supposed to signal innovation, right? Mm-hmm. So it ju- and then they'd have classical guitar. <laughs> it, it just was, some of the stuff was just so bad. <laughs> so we saw an opportunity, and also sometimes when you're investing, it's hard to have the stomach to invest in things where there's not direct attribution, and that is, I can't tell you any infographic specifically that's gotten us a client, I can't tell you that the lighting or the amount of energy we invest in sound engineering, I can't immediately attribute that to revenue. But I know over time that people really do appreciate stuff that looks good and is easy to digest. And just as if you look at kind of the broadening, going 30,000 feet, if you look at Jeff Bezos' genius, he said, I'm going to invest across these truisms of the consumer, and that is Value, selection, and convenience. Those things never go out of style. And while I might not be able to directly attribute convenience to a specific purchase, we said we're going to massively overinvest over the long term. So recognizing we're nowhere on the scale of Amazon or acknowledging that, I was confident that if we overinvested in creative, it would help us differentiate from the competition and hopefully grab the attention, especially in the world, the brands we're catering to, the Nikes, the Chanel's, the LVMH's, the P&G's, these people really understand design mm-hmm. and packaging, and in a moment, in a moment, they when they see content, they think these guys get it or don't get it. It's almost subconscious. So for us, it's been a, a great ROI. And every entrepreneur needs to start at the beginning and say, where are we going to overinvest and where are we going to underinvest? Yeah, right. Because if they just follow what everyone else has done. Someone else is already probably doing it better. So you gotta take some risks and decide what area you're really gonna go deep in.
1: Yeah, I, I know Under Armour's a, a client of yours, you mentioned Nike and, and New Balance and the Adidas's of the world. Many look at them as footwear apparel companies yep. or hard good companies. Yep. They're media aspirational brands as well. Yep. So I totally hear where you're coming from where they get the picture aesthetically yep. and probably wanna align with brands like yourself that that, that think like them. When we talk about the social media platforms, and I've said this a bunch on my podcasts, there's no professional lacrosse without me graduating in 2008, Facebook launching a fan page yep. option, Twitter shortly thereafter, Instagram, where all of a sudden we were given the opportunity to reach our audience. Yep. Where previously, we were a prisoner to linear media. Yep. At the time, you were allowed to build an audience as large as you could and access them and then shortly thereafter, they started introducing these organic reach algorithms, where they yep. limited your ability to talk to your hundred thousand fan base yeah. audience that you built, really, and yeah. spent a lot of time on. Yeah. Um, and so now, for example, right, I have, you have a hundred thousand followers on Facebook. At best, you may get in front of five thousand. At best, and you yeah. might might say it's less now. Yeah. Um, and and then and then to get an engagement, you're only looking at potentially five thousand, which which is a better number is engagement versus impressions. So we go to your YouTube channel, and you create great content. During this time, it's really difficult to pick up new subscribers and customers. So you're doing earned media, which is you're spending to get more viewers. And, and can you help me understand that a little bit more as we try to deploy similar tactics across our channels? So Facebook pulled off one of the greatest bait and switches in corporate
0: history. And that is in early in, its, in the history of the company, it went to brands and said, hey, brands, you should build these things called fan pages. And if you're Nike, how exciting would it be to have evangelists for the brand self-identify and raise their hand and like your page and and basically become an asset of Nike? And Nike, you will own this customer segment. You'll be able to communicate with them directly vis-a-vis our platform. Super compelling value proposition. But Nike, in order to do this, you need to advertise on the platform. And the number of fans a brand had became a vanity metric for how digitally competent they were. So these brands literally spent tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars building these fan communities, as did you. You probably replaced that, that financial capital with human capital trying to build this audience. Then once these things kind of hit critical mass, hundreds of millions of fans, even billions, Facebook showed up and said, just kidding. You don't own them. We do. So it's, And we're gonna, we're going to charge you to access them. And the organic reach went from 100%, meaning 100% of your, your users or fans used to get your content. Now it's almost zero. So I, don't, I see this very in, a, in very straightforward terms, that it's as if you built a house and you paid your taxes and you paid the county to assess the house and, and, and you paid the, the, the flood insurance and then you're putting the finishing touches on the house And the county shows up and says, just kidding. We appreciate you paying to build the house, but we own it. And if you want to live here, you got to start renting it from us. I I see this as pure theft. Hmm. And if any other media company had done this, they wouldn't have got away with it. So this is, I mean, it's genius. More power to them. Right. (laughs) But I just can't get over the brands aren't just more monstrously pissed off. So now... So you look at uh, the platforms, a, a fairly safe assumption is that everything is pay to play. Now, there's going to be cats jumping out of boxes, and Kanye's latest video is going to get a lot of organic reach. <laughs> but you should assume you're not Kanye. Yeah. And if you want reach on social media, you either have got to be super good and scrappy. And by the way, there's still organic reach on Instagram, and people yeah. who are really good at that still get organic reach. That's a matter of time before Facebook turns that into, before they show up with new locks and start... Start charging for access to quote unquote your community right the same is true of any other platform. we're big on YouTube, but the way we evaluate our success of a content on YouTube is the cost per view. so YouTube will tell you that if you're reaching users for ten cents of you, that's pretty good. We're now below two cents of you.
1: Wow, but we still pay for it. How did we you s- get that down to two yeah, with well, con- the
0: the content resonates mm-hmm. I mean Adele gets a billion for free, right so But if I'm going to put out content with a professor talking about the digital competence of Best Buy, you know, that's compelling content, but you probably, you're going to need to buy keywords on, um, you're going to need to buy ads on YouTube if you want to get more than, I would say, we get about a half a million views a week. And we're about 100,000 of those are organic, but we can get another 400,000 for call it about five or eight grand. That's unbelievable. But a $20 CPM to reach a fairly targeted market for a three minute video, that's worth it for us. Yeah. And what that, the role YouTube plays for us from a, uh, uh, an economic standpoint or shareholder standpoint is it softens the beach for us. And that is, when we walk into a room, when we walk into uh, 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 Adidas in Europe, they point and go, oh, that's the video guy. And they want to like us and they want to work with us. Or they, we get somewhere between 10 and 20 inbound emails a day asking what we do. And a decent number of those come from or are inspired by the video. So content marketing, reverse inquiry business model as opposed to outbound sales, I think are two components of, in the, of being successful in a digital age. So content marketing is super powerful using these platforms, but there's just no getting around it. You have to invest. They costs money. And to think that... Your genius is going to break through, and you're going to get a ton of views on your own or a ton of clicks. You're going to be disappointed because you can build this gorgeous house, but you're building it on Mars unless you pay for people to watch it. Hmm. Unless again, you're Taylor Swift. So <laughs> when you go, if you're a small business person, you know the content is is part of the cost. You got to pour some gasoline on on the flames in terms of media buying, uh, advertising on Facebook, advertising on. YouTube advertising on Google, but these, these, these platforms are really efficient and, and are, you know, it sounds like you've been really good at mastering them, but bottom line is it's pay to play.
1: Yeah. It it takes a lot of work. And the other piece of content that has become now my favorite in place weekly of winners and losers is no mercy, no malice.
0: Yeah. Well, I enjoy that a lot.
1: Email newsletter. Yeah. They're becoming more popular. Yeah. Seeing advertisers come in. Yep just as podcasts really difficult to acquire readership as it is listenership. Yeah. You use that forum to give a more detailed recap on your winners and losers from the video, but then you add this, this personal layer of growth and you reflect on your origin story in certain ways. And it's been, uh, it's been really valuable for me, uh, as almost my second therapist, uh, you are, (laughs) it is my therapy. Yeah. Yeah. it, It
0: totally, it is my therapy. It's, um, so news it's, it's interesting. Different mediums solicit different reactions. So the mm-hmm. videos kind of get, in general, a tech bro high five, you know, you're the man kind of reaction, right? Or some anger. People say you're a socialist or whatever. Right. So you get very – it's kind of almost like a being in a bar a little bit where everyone's a little bit drunk. The, the research, the hardcore written research gets a very highbrow – SVP of e commerce has specific questions that they, they want to do a conference call after sending an email. The newsletter gets a much more substantive emotional response for people, not only because of the content, because of the medium. People appreciate when you take the time to write something and they're less likely to kind of come after you or they're less likely to high five you but they have more thoughtful questions. It is really hard to get readership on a newsletter. We're at eighty thousand. We have eighty thousand people who have subscribed to our wow, newsletter numbers. But I feel like we've done it one by one. Mm-hmm. It is—it has been a l- really hard, and we've spent a lot of time and energy on this on these things. And the most rewarding thing for me is what you re- uh, referenced, Paul. Uh, I do the first half. I talk about a business issue, and the second half I talk about my kids or I talk about relationships. And it's just—it's fun to explore a side of that, a part of that, where you can say, if no one was watching, and I wanted my kids to know who I really was and what I was thinking about. You know, if I could memorialize that and write that, because I'm actually a fairly intense person, and I wouldn't describe myself as like a light, fun guy around the house. But if you wanted your kids, when they were old enough, to really know who you are, uh, that's why I write this stuff. And it's 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 very rewarding because I hear from mothers and grandmothers and dads, and they write these very thoughtful responses back. Hmm. And I it's it, I don't get that kind of feedback from anything else I do at work. And you guys. You know, I'm sitting here with you now. You're young guys, and you're gonna—you're super focused on your careers. You're super super focused, as you should be, on economic success. You're super focused on building relevance for yourself. Um, you get to a certain age. Uh, I'm going to be 53 in uh, uh, a few weeks, and you, re- you start recognizing—you know—your number of the number of holidays you have with your kids is limited, and you start thinking about, okay, what is really important to me, and if you have the luxury. Of some economic security and feeling like you've accomplished some modest of success, you start to think, okay, what's really important to me, and I want to write about those things. And slowly but surely the relationships in your life, the friendships, the people in your life, your kids, the really meaningful things start to wash over some of the stuff you have worked so hard for. The you know, economic security, professional relevance. Those things are those things are meaningful, but as you get older, you realize that the relationships are really profound and it's just a huge gift to be able to write about it. Uh, whereas my whole life I've just been writing about, you know, distribution channels, uh, for CPG firms. So it's fun to write about. Well, it, I think it.
1: what you're really good at though is not coming in and writing lessons and and you do give some prescription work for, for college grads. And I want to yeah. hit on that a little bit, but you're, you're really vulnerable in the way that you write and you it, it the admission of error mm-hmm. uh, is is the consistent part of of each piece, and you you, you reference the evolution of Scott Galloway uh, as a person, uh, but often say that I wouldn't have changed it even as like a, a brash young entrepreneur in a room mm-hmm. with VCs. Which you've publicly rated in, in, in yeah. one of your in yeah. one of your uh, no mercy I, no malice, we'll well, which was we'll awesome. We'll never raise money again. I yeah. was sharing that with all of my business partners. You're
0: like, you know, these guys. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't recommend you do that until you, you, you know you have your rent paid
1: for a while. So, can you give us uh, just for our our listeners that that haven't read any of your work, just your origin story, because that's what really. Hits home, uh-huh. right? You know, you're a son to to immigrants. You, yep. you grow up, yep. grew up with a single mom. So
0: I have the, I, you know, as you get older, you. I think it's healthy to think about if you've had some success, what are the reasons or the things, the reasons for those success? And it's very easy to credit credit your character and your hard work for your success. But most of us, all of us, have external factors that are sort of not our fault or that we're just very fortunate. And the two things for me is one the irrational passion for my well-being of, of my mom. And it sounds, you know, sounds passé and ridiculous, but the key to, I think the key to success for almost any, any person is that at some point in their life, they had someone else who was irrationally passionate about their well-being. And it's usually your parents, but it can be a grandparent. It can be, it can be someone who adopts you emotionally or financially. But that's key to success is that, sa- that safety net, that confidence of having someone in your life who thinks you're wonderful, um, and ensures that you fill out an application to college, and then proofs it for you, and then you know makes sure you you know that you 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 instill some sense of discipline in you growing up. I'm sure as you know you're an athlete. I imagine you had a lot of people who who spent a lot of time with you and weren't mm-hmm. sure it was ever going to come back to them in terms of teaching you grit and skills and discipline. And then the second thing for me was. Uh, the hand of big government, and that is uh, the University of California. I had access to this world-class education for almost free. My mother lived and died a secretary. I would have never had the confidence. You're an athlete. You probably had the opportunity to go to some great schools. I wasn't a good athlete, so I wasn't going to get recruited anywhere. I had marginal grades, but I didn't test well either. And yet UCLA gave me a chance and uh, took a big gamble on them, and I rewarded them with a 2.27 GPA. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then, for some reason, the University of California, Berkeley decided to give me another chance and let me into business school there, where I kind of got my act together and I think matured a little bit. Studied, got inspired by a professor there. Started a business uh, called Profit that we grew to about four hundred people and is now you know a thriving brand strategy firm, largely on the backs of, of you know other management. But these things, you know, being the smartest thing I ever did was being born in California and. There just aren't that many people born to single single immigrant mothers around the world who had, have the opportunities I had. So I'm very involved in public education now. Um, I like to think I'm more empathetic to the plight that that women face at work mm-hmm. and how it's important to recognize that they may have more uh, responsibility at home than some of the some of the some of my male colleagues. But you know, I, I just got so damn lucky when you think about it. And I, I try to remember how fortunate I was. And I want to spend, you know, I, I, look, I'm, I, as I said in my newsletter, the first 50, year old, 50 years of my life have been all about me all the fucking time. I've been totally focused on me. How do I get more money? How do I get more stuff? How do I get more experiences? How, how can I be perceived as cooler? Like this hamster wheel of just me, me, me all the time. And I want to spend the next 50 years of my life trying to spend a little bit more time on others. And I, I think a lot about happiness and how you, how you achieve happiness. There's some fantastic research on happiness over the last couple of years. And this, to summarize, people overestimate the happiness they'll get from material things. And they underestimate the happiness that they'll get um, from experiences and from um, uh, philanthropy. Hmm. And so... Uh, I had a big win earlier this year with uh, selling the company to Gartner, and so the place I spend money is on experiences, great things with my kids, great things with my wife, you know giving ourselves fantastic experiences and i 'm starting to give back and and really enjoy the philanthropic side of it. It is tremendously uh, rewarding, but I, you know, I I, I live well, but I still live in faculty housing, and I like that. It's yeah. not I'm not chasing it. You know, guys your age, and maybe you guys are more involved than than I was, but you know, you're just always chasing it. That's right, chasing it. Yeah. And it's important to be hungry and aggressive because I think a parent's job and a grown up's job is to build economic security for yourself and your family. I think that's that's a first priority for you. But at some point, you want to kind of slow down a little bit and say, all right. How, you know, to what end, right? so and and investing in relationships, investing in your family, starting starting to get more involved in the community that all it, it's not I don't even see it as philanthropy. I see it as consumption because it's just super rewarding. yeah,
1: there there seems to be a paradox though in in creating a life for yourself as you envision as a hard worker competitor. Uh, and, and you reference like you know, life is about endurance. it's not it's not the strong, it's those who are fast and who mm-hmm. work really hard. And that limits your time to develop relationships. Mm-hmm. Do you advise some of your students at NYU or even those who work for you to do things like meditation mm-hmm. or therapy or ways to, how can you be more efficient on mm-hmm. that side, given the assumption that many of the um, of the thoroughbreds are working their tails off mm-hmm. through their 20s and 30s? So
0: this is a tough one. And uh, I have a viewpoint on it, but I don't want to pretend that I, I'm, I've got a monopoly on what's right or true here. Clay Christensen, who's probably, I would argue, the most influential academic in the world now, the Harvard professor, who kind of came up with the notion of disruptive strategy. He's um, got a really compelling wrap around how important it is through your whole career to continue to invest in your relationships. And then if you ignore the investment in those relationships, it comes up and it haunts you. My view is that balance in your 20s and 30s is a myth. And that and we all know somebody who's great at what they do professionally, volunteers at the ASPCA and has a food blog. You should assume you are not that person. And if you're focused on economic security, which I think is, is very important, and I realize how crass that sounds, uh, you should assume that the vast majority of your calories and hours, waking hours in your 20s and 30s, are going to go to work. And to be great at something, and I'm not saying that's good or good. I'm just saying it is. We live in a full-body contact, competitive economy where everyone wants a disproportionate share of their resources. So you're only licensed or, or, or purchased to those additional resources that we all want. We all want an unfair, not all of us, most of us want an unfair share of those resources. You just got to work your ass off. Mm-hmm. I don't know anyone very successful who hasn't who a doesn't have some talent, some level of talent, but that's not the differentiating feature. It's grit and working your ass off. So, I have a lot of balance in my life now because I had none when I was in my 20s and 30s. Mm. Or you know, I you know, I made sure to work out or stay somewhat physically fit. I did, you know, I took nice vacations if you will, but I took vacations with clients. Mm. You know, when I was eating dinner, I was with clients. I was just always if I was awake, I was thinking about work. And it takes a huge toll. It took a toll. I wasn't as healthy as I should have been. Uh, you know, My first marriage broke up. and you know, I would say not mostly but partially because of the stress of our careers. But I would argue it was worth it. And it, we don't like to talk about that. We like to pretend we live in this utopia where we can have balance and invest in our relationships. And I'd like to think that's true. That hasn't been my experience. My experience is that if you want economic security, there's going to have to be a 10 or 20-year period in your life where you're going to have to be very focused on
1: work. Mm-hmm. And another area that you haven't exactly qualified as a myth, but, but you're against the grain and, and to college grads, it's like, don't follow your passion. Ben Horowitz talks a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but why is that? So
0: I think your job as a young person isn't to figure out what your passion is. If someone shows up as a luncheon speaker and tells you to follow your passion, it usually means they're already rich. And the person telling you to follow your passion got rich selling a SaaS company to a healthcare maintenance company. And the notion that somehow this guy or gal was passionate about healthcare software, it's just... Okay, really? (laughs) Uh, What they're passionate about is success because the accoutrements and the psychological and economic benefits of being successful are intoxicating. And whatever you are good at, if it creates recognition both psychologically and economically, you're going to become passionate about it. So I don't think your job is to find your passion. And by the way, there is – there are – the 1% of the population – that can make a living playing basketball. That can make a living producing movies. Right? I would have liked to have been an athlete. I just didn't have the skills. Well, you're a good rower. Uh, no, I was a marginal rower. I made. I was the. Wor- I. I, I rowed at UCLA, but it was. I was easily the worst rower. Probably worst worst rower on the program in, in history there. So, but uh, but it got me a job at Morgan Stanley with a 2.27 GPA. So it, it, it was sort of a, a lose win. A win for me. A lose for them. But but if you um. You know, if 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 your job as someone in your twenties, find out what you're good at, and if you really are an amazing restaurateur, okay, fine, then then take a shot at it. But these passion areas—food, film, the arts, sports—if you're not in the top 0.1%, hmm. you're not going to make a great living. So. The the, the notion of you want to find out what you're great at. Tax attorneys, I don't believe they're passionate about tax law. They're passionate about flying business class. Mm -hmm. They're passionate about building economic security for them and their families. They're passionate about the recognition they get that they're great at something. I didn't grow up thinking, wow, I'm just really excited about multivariate regression analysis looking at digital IQ of corporations. That wasn't... (laughs) When I was eight, I didn't dream of that, right? And I wake up on Monday mornings. I'm at a point in my life where I really like what I do. I don't differentiate between the weekend, but I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm passionate about. I can't. I'm going to the World Cup next summer with my kid. I can't wait for that, right? right? So, wouldn't it be great to figure out a way to make a living at the World Cup? My skills at UEF or whatever. I could. I'm a talented guy. I could probably make eighty grand a year at some point there. But I can make more money and build more economic security doing what I'm doing. And I've become passionate about building companies and the rewards they offer. It's very exciting. So, yeah, sure, if you're one of the 0.1% that can make a living in your, quote-unquote, passion, more power to you, sister. And I hate discouraging people from that. But I think your job as a young person is to get credentialed, whether it's college or a Class 3 driver's license or a personal training certificate or a CPA or CFA, our society values credentials, and then find something you're good at and become committed to becoming the best in the world at it. Yeah. And when you're great at something, and I don't care what it is or how how cool it sounds, if you're great at it, it's going to get really cool for you really fast. Yeah. The, the 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 you know, the best software engineers, the best, you know, plastics uh, the best plastics engineers, I mean, I'm just trying to think of what just sounds awful, <laughs> right, <laughs> right? Are, are passionate about their work and their lives because they get tremendous recognition mm-hmm. and accoutrement. So your job, sure. I, I don't think your job is to follow your passion. I think your job is to get great at something, hmm. be the best in the world at it. And if you can be the best in the world, whatever it is, you're going to become passionate about it.
1: Yeah. And Scott is super humble, obviously. So don't expect a response. The best at analyzing and forecasting the big four, which are Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Google. There's a lot of sex appeal to these mm-hmm. four platforms. And primarily people say, oh, they do this great, this this great, that great, and the other. What you've done in this book is also criticize them mm-hmm. and talk about ways that they're, they they potentially be very detrimental to society. Mm-hmm. Um, one area that, that you highlight early on is that they employ roughly 420,000 people the size of Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and their stock market value is $2.3 trillion. Mm-hmm. Um, So there's this direct correlation to current uh, labor costs to mm-hmm. produce in the past and what these guys are doing mm-hmm. with half and, and sometimes uh, even less than that. So- even, even even, more impressive, you, you've drawn on to metaphors of, of how these mm-hmm. companies uh, interact with us personally. Mm-hmm. And in mm-hmm. a way, it's similar to how we're describing the YouTube channel and the newsletter and, like, direct relationship access. Mm-hmm. And you've gone from the brain mm-hmm. to the heart to mm-hmm. the gut to mm-hmm. our genitals. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? Sure. So I think part of the reason that these companies have
0: enjoyed such incredible user adoption on the scale of billions of people is that they immediately resonate with an instinct, and they, they are, these companies are who we are. So let's go through each of them. As a species, we have a need for a super being, because our brain is robust enough to ask really hard questions, but it's not robust enough to answer them. You know, how does space not, you know, not end? How, why do we die? Why in a world with so many resources is there such incredible suffering? I mean, these are just questions we can't seem to answer. So as a result, our species finds comfort in a super being, and that is someone else has a plan. There is justice. There is, a, there is a heaven. There is a hell. There's someone looking over us that can answer our prayers. And what is prayer? We send into the universe or the cosmos a question, will my kid be all right? And you guys don't have kids yet, right? No. So you wait and see. Once you have kids, you have your planet of stuff. You have your planet of friends. You have your planet of work. You have your planet of kids. When you're, some, something goes wrong with one of your kids. Your kid's not doing well. Everything else collapses to the son of your kids, and that's all you can think about. And that's instinctual. So you, you reach up to the heavens and you say, Will my kid be all right? And when you pray, you're sending information up to the heavens, hoping there's some sort of divine authority that is all knowing and sees all questions, can process that prayer, that question, and then send back an answer. Will my kid be all right? Now it's symptoms and treatment of croup in the Google query box. Google is a modern man's god. One in six questions presented to Google have never been asked before in the history of mankind. What priest, coach, rabbi, mentor, boss has so much credibility that one out of six questions presented to that person have never been asked before in the history of mankind, and the person asking it thinks they're going to get a good answer back. If you want to know how much authority or reverence you have for Google – Imagine your name, your face above every query you have typed into that search box. What Mm -hmm. you're going to find is, one, A, it's super scary. And b, you trust Google more than anyone in the world with your thoughts yep. there's no way you would share some of the crazy shit you type into Google with anyone right. else in the world <laughs>
1: right.
0: the first time that first clear thing, your
1: cash whenever you're worried about
0: <laughs> yeah let's hope there that would be the mother of all hacks. you want to talk about literally societal breakdown because right. all of a sudden your name and your face was above every Google search we had done. that would be frightening, so But if you think there's no one else we trust like that. There's no one we look to with authority. You you, you get a weird, you break out in any sort of rash. You immediately go to Google. You Mm. want to know what your girlfriend from 10 years is up to. You immediately go to Google. Mm. You don't feel it's appropriate to be stalking your old girlfriend so you wouldn't talk to anybody about it. You wouldn't even be open with your therapist. I'm thinking about my girlfriend from college. You tell Google you're thinking about her. (laughs) So these are, Google is our God. All right, moving down. One of the wonderful things about our species is we not only need to be loved, kids who have poor nutrition and affection have better outcomes than kids with good nutrition and poor affection. But we also need to love others. And our lizard brain has a fantastic means of evaluating whether or not we're adding any value. And the people who live the longest aren't the ones with the best genetics. They're not even the ones with the best lifestyle. They're the ones that have the most people in their life that they're loving or taking care of. Caregivers live longer. That's one key component. That's the strongest signal or indicator of whether you'll live to 100 years of age is how many people in your life you're taking care of. Mm. There's something about the act of caring, both physically and mentally, that releases a hormone that clears out the bad cholesterol and you live longer. So we have a need to love others. And I think Facebook foots to that need, and mostly through images, catalyzes and strengthens relationships. I think (laughs) Facebook foots to our need to have connection and to feel love and to love others. Moving further down the torso. More people have died from malnutrition and starvation than likely any other malady or disease or sickness in history. And the penalty for too little stuff is starvation, which is a horrible death. Mm -hmm. The penalty for too much is gluttony, a little extra weight. In our day and age, it's diabetes, which has a, a long lag. Maybe you signal some waste. So we're taught... As an instinct that when we open our cupboards, when we open our closets, we should have somewhere between 10 and 100x what we actually need. Yeah. You just, you really open any storage, go into your garage, just go anywhere. If you, I don't know, you guys haven't had enough time to aggregate a lot of stuff, but you'll get into this whole game of personal storage. And you're literally going to forget what's in there, other than you know you need it, yeah. and you have to. You can't. You can't purge it. So the concept of more, always more, is really drilled into us. And this is the. It's a, more for less is the most winning business strategy in the history of our economy. It's the strategy of China. It's the strategy of Walmart. It's the strategy of Dell. It's the strategy of Amazon. So our consumptive gut that takes in stuff figures out a way to soak nutrients from it and then power our cardiovascular and our muscular and our skeletal infrastructure is key. So Amazon is kind of offering more for less, easier than any other company in history, and as a result, incredibly valuable. And then finally, moving down further the torso, our number one instinct, our most powerful instinct is survival. But most of us wake up in the morning and feel like that box has been checked. None of us in this room woke up this morning and thought, I am in any way worried about surviving, we thought, okay, I'm going to get through the day, which moves us to our second instinct, which is propagation. And a man's job for the, for the history of our species is number one, to survive. And then two, it's to spread his DNA to the four corners of the earth. We're taught that we're just so awesome that if we have the opportunity to spread our DNA, we should do it as far and as wide as we can. A woman's job is to survive, and two, to inspire more opportunities or more offers for seed and DNA so she can put up her much finer filter and pick the smartest, strongest, and fastest DNA. And this chocolate and peanut butter combination of DNA trying to get in everywhere (laughs) and then a much finer filter is the basis for evolutionary progress. What is the way you signal strength, power, and opportunities to spread your DNA and at the same time solicit more inbound offers you're part of the innovation class you're wealthy you have design you get it you own an iphone apple is the new luxury item luxury signals one of two things two value propositions it makes you feel closer to god the majority of the beautiful things in our society throughout most of time have been found in religious institution beautiful frescoes jewel encrusted chalices Mm -hmm. gorgeous apparel backdrop of beautiful music was in churches, temples, and mosques, so we feel closer to God. We see the slope on the back of a nine eleven. We see the mesh on a Bottega Veneta bag, and we feel more spiritual. We're stilled. We also believe that beautiful things signal power, signal wealth, and signal. Your good genes. Your iPhone says, I have good genes. You pay for dinner with a Discover card. You invite someone over and you play ad-supported Pandora. You're saying, I have bad genes. Don't mate with me. <laughs> when you have a, an Android or a BlackBerry, you're saying, do not mate with me. When you have an Apple, when you have an iPhone, you're saying, I get it. I have more disposable income. I have better genes. Mate with me. So I think Apple it basically has said, we, want to, we don't want to be the best house in the worst neighborhood, hardware. We want to be the best house in the best neighborhood, which is luxury. If you look at the Forbes 400, the 400 wealthiest people in the world, and you take out finance and inherited wealth, the largest source of wealth among the 400 wealthiest people in the world is luxury Hmm. or something that taps into this kind of reproductive proposition. Look at Europe. Wealthiest man in Europe, Bernard Arnault, LVMH. Numbers two and three are the signs of H&M and Inditex, Zara, so this ability to tap into our need to procreate and distill it down to shareholder value is immensely profitable. So you, you, you need to say, in my business, which organ am I appealing to? And ideally, you want to go as far down the torso as possible because the margins get better. The more irrational the organ making the decision, <laughs> if I appeal to your brain and right. say, I got an idea for a high caloric paste for your kids that is really nutritious, and we use it by grounding up peanuts— you might say, okay, that makes sense. But you're going to think about other high-caloric ways to feed your kids, and you're going to starch the margin out. But if I say to you, by buying this high-caloric peanut paste, you're going to signal to your kids and to yourself and to your husband and to your neighbors that you love your children more. We're appealing to your worth as a mother. Mm-hmm. Why? Because choosing moms choose Jif. Boom. That $0.40 high-caloric you know, high paste goes to $2.40. You want to appeal to the heart and to the emotion. There is no rational reason I should be wearing this $11,000 watch. It costs $1,800 to manufacture. I pay $9,200 in gross margin. But I'm trying to signal to women that if you mate with me, your kids are more likely to survive than if you mate with someone wearing a swatch. Even though I'm in a monogamous relationship, that desire to be attractive to the other sex sticks with you. Women will wear beautiful undergarments, men will buy $200,000 cars that go 160 miles an hour in a country where the speed limits are 55 because it's been pounded into us, must be more attractive Mm -hmm. to the other sex. And when we start worrying about dying, all of a sudden we start getting very concerned about being more attractive to
1: the opposite sex. But first and last slide in every class I have, which organ are you appealing to? Hmm. Being seen and feeling heard is a part of our psychological makeup, and we know we need that. Yep, and, and I think what you've described here is is the psychological metaphors that each of these companies have built their foundations on. And Facebook, you've cited with they took off with photos, Amazon with reviews, Apple with stores. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the scope of a lot of your teachings is 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 under the impression that soon they'll each be a trillion dollar market cap company. But who's going to be the first? Yep. Uh, and, and the way that I see it and I'm, and you're, you're far smarter than me and is like, there, there are, they're all trying to kind of share organs or steal the organ from the next person. And, mm-hmm. and, and when you look at what you predicted, Amazon acquiring whole foods, mm-hmm. whole foods, you know, kind of fall into a gray area. But what I would have seen is like appealing simultaneously to consumption and sex, mm-hmm. right? Because you, know, you shop at whole foods, you, people go on dates at whole foods in the coffee yep. area. Um, Amazon needed that because mm-hmm. they, they're they also appealing to the brain and their low costs and their margins. So you're seeing a lot of M&A mm-hmm. uh, that's potentially taking place. And uh, And we could talk a little bit about Amazon's margins and how mm-hmm. that's changed the way that the traditional economic forecasters on Wall Street look at companies. But why and who do you think is going to be the first trillion-dollar market cap company? So – the it's always bo-
0: changing, right? It is changing, and one jets out ahead of the other. But I would argue right now that if the four were to become the one, and you had to pick one that's going to get to a trillion dollars fastest, the most logical per- uh, the most logical prediction would be Apple because it's closest. It's mm-hmm. about seven hundred fifty billion, I think. Yeah, I believe the first trillion dollar company is going to be Amazon. And if you look, if you look at where. The four are butting up against each other. Until about 10 years ago, they were largely, they had sort of an unwritten pact. And who knows, maybe it was, it was actually uh, an, an explicit agreement between them <laughs> that we didn't know about. But they were happy to go after the befuddled prey of the old economy companies in their respective sectors. And they largely left each other alone. I mean, uh, I think Eric Schmidt was on Apple's board at one point. Wow. Now they're going after each other. They're so big and so dominant and they have so much revenues, they have no choice but to kind of go after each other. And that's good for consumers. There's sort of safety and hatred, these guys going after each other. But if you look at where they bump up against each other, everywhere they the Venn diagram overlaps, Amazon is winning. Hmm. So look at where look at where Amazon bumps up against Google in search. No doubt about it. Google owns for the most part search taken holistically. But if you look at the segment of product search, people searching for a pair of new balance shoes, Amazon in two thousand had a 44% share of product search. It's now 55%. They have double the share of product search of Google. A lot of people say Amazon is a search engine with a warehouse attached to it. Where do they bump up? Where does Amazon bump up against Google and Facebook? They're trying, they're all competing for the marketing dollars, the digital marketing dollars of P&G and Unilever and other consumer brands and Nike Amazon's media group, which sells ads on their platform to to consumer firms, is now growing faster than Facebook or Google. It's only a fraction of the size of Facebook and Google, but it's triple the size of Snap, and it's probably going to be bigger than Twitter in two or three years. But we never talk about Amazon as a media company. Amazon is is arguably the fastest-growing media company in the world right now. We know they're the fastest-growing online retailer. They're responsible for two-thirds of the growth in online retailer. Basically, if you're in e-commerce... You're not growing unless you're Amazon. Yep. And they're responsible for about a third of all retail growth, period. And with the acquisition of Whole Foods, they're about to become the fastest-growing offline retailer. Let's talk about where they bump up against Apple in streaming video, streaming Mm -hmm. media. 2015, they were number seven in terms of market share, of of the, the share of viewership during prime time. 2016, they're number three. They're going to spend $4.5 billion on original scripted content this year, second only to Netflix, more than the $4 billion ABC and CBS are spending, more than the two two and $2.5 billion HBO spends, and more than the $1 billion that Facebook and Apple have allocated. So all of a sudden, Amazon is bumping up against Apple and potentially Netflix, which will really
1: be the mother of all battles if that happens in two or three years. How do you think Amazon stole voice technology and Google even from Apple? They were the first to do it. That's a great point, Paul. Let's
0: look at where Amazon also bumps up against Apple. Computer hardware. Most uh, uh, Most innovative hardware product of 2015, 2016. Was it the Apple Watch? Was it the Apple Pods? No. It was Amazon's Echo. Who would have said five years ago the most innovative company in hardware, or at least the most innovative product, would be an Amazon product? A third of all computing, or a third of all queries anyways, by 2020, are going to be without a screen. It's going to be voice. Voice is a ridiculously interesting and fast-growing segment. Who's winning? Alexa is kicking Siri's ass all over the field in full view of everyone. (laughs) And Siri owned it. Literally owned it. When you thought of voice yeah. five years ago, oh, yeah. the word that would have come out of it, could you name the Google voice? Like, could you name, the, it was Siri. Yep. And they have literally been leapfrogged, at least in the home. They still have a larger installed base and greater share on the phone because of the installed base of the iPhone. But Echo is, an Alexa with their buttery voice is, is, kill, is, is well ahead of Google and has leapfrogged Apple. So everywhere that these guys bump up against each other, On a relative basis, Amazon is winning. I don't see anything getting in the way of Amazon in a trillion-dollar market cap, with the exception of D.C., but more likely Brussels. I think regulation is the only thing that stands in between them and a trillion-dollar market cap. Hmm.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. So the the four that you mentioned, uh, I believe, are going to have, and already are, given your media explanations and their allocated spends thus far, having a massive impact on sports. Here's why sports is really important, even for, for those of us that, that don't care to watch for it, is that sports is in the critical mass zone, as is religion and politics. Those mm-hmm. are the three uh, main, I believe, sectors that, that, that govern our society that are gender agnostic. You can have a conversation although many say don't have a conversation at the dinner table about religion or politics. Sports seems to find in there. It also is the only tailgating environment where I see uh, two people, one supporting uh, the conservative party, one supporting the Democratic Party, and they're getting together and Mm -hmm. they're sharing a beer because they both watch the Washington Redskins. So sports is super powerful. It's also representative of of one of the only last standing appointment television, which You know, we look at broadcasted cable and how much money has gone into that traditionally and the scramble of broadcasting rights for the last standing piece, which is sports. Amazon and Facebook are bidding at those properties. They are incredibly wealthy, mm-hmm. as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, the contracts by most, the, the, the big sports, NFL, NBA, MLB, they're all expiring mm-hmm. in 2021, and they'll be up for renegotiation to give you a high level the NFL gets paid about $12 billion a year. That's across ESPN, wow. Fox, CBS, NBC, and DirecTV does $1.5 billion for the NFL Sunday ticket. Mm-hmm. The NBA does about $2.6 billion from ESPN and Turner. That's up 180% since mm-hmm. 2007. MLB does 12.4 over eight years, and mm-hmm. that's ESPN Turner, and that's national, and we all know that baseball gets a ton of money on a franchisee basis for mm-hmm. regional sports network deals. Mm-hmm. The NHL and MLS are, are up to $400 million a year, and then Premier League football, which I think you watch, I know I watch, mm-hmm. gets about $1.8 billion a year just from Sky Sports. Mm-hmm. So these are massive spends. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the sports ownership groups now think that it's at its high, mm-hmm. and because of cord-cutting in, mm-hmm. in the millennials, now Gen Zs, taking mm-hmm. the, the vast majority of, of the marketplace and consumer spending, that the price may come down, mm-hmm. and why wouldn't Apple, Amazon, uh, Facebook win these bids? Yep. yep. So what's, what's your take on on how far they'll go into live sports, mm-hmm. even what we know with Reed Hastings and, and Netflix saying, eh, sports isn't really that interesting outside of Last Chance U that does well? Um, Is that something, live sports, long content or Mm long-form programming Mm -hmm. that these companies will be willing to spend a lot on? So uh, you're going to forget more about sports than I'm ever going to know.
0: But I'll (laughs) I'll give you – if I try and apply what I see happening across the consumer ecosystem, what I think is going to happen and knowing a little bit about media. So sports has been – Because of what you're talking about, appointment viewing, kind of the last firewall in what I would call the advertising industrial complex, and that is ABC and broadcast or ad-supported broadcast TV has said, we'll always have the NFL, and that is people like to tune in for live sports, and they'll actually endure the ads, whereas most of us would rather go to iTunes and spend $2.99 to download Modern Family and have a 21-minute experience instead of a 30-minute experience, or DVR the program and just skip through the ads. Sports has been the exception, and if you take out sports from broadcast uh, viewership, it's declining dramatically. Mm -hmm. They're literally holding on to their viewers because of broadcast sports. So a couple things spell doom for the advertising industrial complex. The first is that millennials, you guys, the ones with the disposable income who now have more disposable income than baby boomers, are no longer watching appointment TV. Hmm. And even in sports, what you're starting to see is the average viewership is increasing dramatically. So you're, the, the thing you brought up is really dramatic, and that is it's only a matter of time. Nobody, nobody gets any real equity or sustainable advantage from these sports. You'll watch the Super Bowl just as easily on Bravo, Vice. I'd watch it on the Cooking Channel. It just doesn't matter, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't think, oh, the, oh, it's, it's ABC bringing us the Oscars. Who gives a shit, right? right? right. So, it, it's just these these broadcast networks add no value other in sports other than the fact that they, who has the biggest checkbook and they they broadcast them. The guys with the biggest checkbook in town now are in Seattle and Cupertino, so it's only a matter of time, and you're already starting to see it where Amazon's going to get March Madness. Apple or somebody is going to buy the Super Bowl or the World Cup. Why? Because they can monetize. Amazon can monetize the Super Bowl across 60 million households by selling them more paper towels via Prime. They can create more intensity across that Prime relationship and monetize it a bunch of different ways. So they can afford to spend $4.5 billion on content even when there's no way they could support it using the traditional advertising model because as long as people are more inclined to pay $99 a year and buy all of their products through Amazon, and by the way, Amazon's profit hurdle or ROI hurdle is so much lower than ABCs or Viacomps, they're just sort of playing unfair. Mm-hmm. It's as if I said to you, okay, if 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 in any lacrosse game, I spotted you 10, 10 goals, right? Yeah. Is that even the right term, goals in lacrosse? Yeah, that's right, that's right. Just... <laughs> so... That's well, knew what I am- played for the Lizards. So you there did you know. some <laughs> I did know that. I, I googled you. <laughs> anyway, so so Amazon has just got these companies just have deeper products. So it's only a matter of time before they sports are about to get in some ways awesome because you're about to be able to watch them without ads because Amazon or Apple are, are going to start buying them. Now, the more interesting, I'm not saying anything anyone hasn't talked about ad nauseum. I think the the, the interesting phenomena that might be great for lacrosse is that what you're seeing in every consumer category is the long tail has new life. And that is, 10 years ago, it was AB InBev and Coors and Miller, and then everybody else is losing money. Now there are 300 craft breweries making a living. All the growth and beauty is these little independent brands hmm. that have spent all their money on on ingredients, natural, and then use Amazon for kind of... Light distribution, and then they do all their branding on Instagram. I think what you're going to see in sports. What what do the biggest the big the market share leader in every CPG category have in common? They're losing share. So people are no longer people are no longer buying Danone. They're not even buying Chobani. They're buying some kefir curdled yogurt that they think Beyonce likes because they saw it on Instagram. Think about the beers you're drinking versus the beers I'm drinking. You guys probably. Buy some funky IPA while you're playing shuffleboard in Brooklyn, and I used to think I was cool because I bought, you know, Heineken. That meant I was really, like, really pushing the envelope, but cool, right? The long tail in every consumer category is growing. So my prediction for sports is you're going to see the NFL, the MLB, the NBA going to dramatic structural decline, and you're going to see the long tail: lacrosse, water polo, this find new life Hmm. because all of a sudden if I played lacrosse in college and I'm in Germany as long as I have a a smartphone I can find the content and I can stream it uninterrupted and I'm willing to pay for it. There's going to be the technology that says look it's worth five bucks to me and I know there's 10 or 20,000 people out there who it's worth five bucks to so the production costs are 40 or 60,000 so someone can figure out a way to make money or Amazon's just going to say we're going to buy all these long tail sports and create real intensity. Because, you know, I do CrossFit. I would never wear Reebok shoes, ever. But <laughs> Reebok is so into CrossFit until recently, all of a sudden found, okay, I'm going to buy a pair of Reebok shoes because I feel this affinity for them, right? They're taking advantage of these long tails. I think there's going to be growth in the long tail just as, just as in food. You know, but the NBA, the MLB, they're the tide, right? They're the... They're the tide in the Budweiser. The growth is going to be in the long tail. But you're going to see, with the decline in the advertising industrial complex, because the kids with all the money won't endure ads, You know what is advertising? Advertising has become a tax that the poor and the technologically illiterate have to pay. You guys aren't watching advertising. Do you watch... Media bifurcates into two things. The media that sucks because it has advertising and the media that's awesome... You pull up because you have some money and you can avoid advertising. Right. If you have a lot of advertising in your life, it means you don't have a lot of options. That's the bottom line. Go into a third world country, you're littered with advertising, no zoning. Go to Paris, there's literally regulation where you are not allowed to be able to see an ad with an eye shot of, uh, of any park. It's impossible to see an ad when you're in a park in Paris. Wealthy, wealthy society that's realized advertising sucks, yeah. full stop. So if you can pay for it, Boom, we'll give it to you ad-free. New York Times has an ad-free option now. Netflix is growing. What's the key component of Netflix? Is it their technology? Is it their AI? Is it their content? No, it's ad-free. If I just let my kids only watch Netflix and no broadcast television, they save 11 days a year just in advertising.
1: Here's why I love this: the the metaphorical stuff, too, is that Netflix just boosted their subscription fee, and Hulu said, we're going to people with a brain. And we're gonna drop ours. We're gonna serve some ads, but they just announced today or yesterday. There's $5.99 subscription-based service now, and Netflix has boosted a couple of dollars higher. We're gonna do a behind-the-scenes negotiation right now, where one of your winners and losers is going to be winner lacrosse, loser NFL. And in return, I'll yeah. give you the five to six K for the extra four hundred thousand views. Wow,
0: <laughs> I can be bought, just okay. so you know. As I tell, as I tell my clients, I'm a whore. I'm just an expensive whore. <laughs> Or a sex worker. And by the way,
1: I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's a legitimate profession, but that's another podcast. Okay, so, so sports retail now. So we, we talked about media, Amazon's impact on the e-commerce side. The other paradox here is that yep. e-commerce is kicking everyone's ass, yep. but as you've identified the temples of Apple being their stores yep. – um, and then the need for brick and mortar in the future and where Amazon is now buying stores, Mm -hmm. like where do you land? If you're a brand, Mm -hmm. are you an all e-commerce strategy? And I'll, I'll paint another picture around sports is that, you know, broadly in Q1, nine retail bankruptcies were reported and that was Mm -hmm. more than 2016 combined. Mm -hmm. We saw sports authority drop. Mm -hmm. Dick's sporting goods seems to be the only one left standing and they're, they're having some troubling times. And then all the mom and pop stores that we see, that traditionally we're in middle market areas, which I'm, I'm sure mm-hmm. you'll address the middle class. People aren't buying their, their goods um, in these shops anymore. They're going online. And then we're also seeing this juxtaposition of Amazon saying, well, we're online and we're also going to buy up stores now. Mm-hmm. So uh,
0: let's assume you start an online e-commerce retailer. Let's assume you're really good at it and it's successful. I'm 100% certain you will go out of business. I do not believe there is a single, sustainable, e-commerce-only company in the world. Hmm. I don't think it works. I don't think consumers live in isolation of any one medium. You're competing against Amazon for customer acquisition because you lack the, the feel, the texture. Of the, and by the way, the, the most efficient fulfillment in the world is to go to a store, pick up something, and take it home, as long as the store is close to your house. Yeah. It's, Walmart ran a great ad a couple of years ago saying, free delivery if you come to the store and pick it up. You know, it's just, so (laughs) a lot of people don't have a doorman. A lot of people, I, I find just opening, I'm at an age now where I'm easily confused and I have no hand strength. I find opening boxes to take me about an hour every day. So I buy stuff at a store with a nice lady who knows what I want. She takes my credit card and she gives me the product. If I buy shoes, I wear them out of the store and they recycle my shoes for me. So stores are not the, the rumors of stores' death are greatly exaggerated. Now, do we have too many stores? Yeah, we have about three square feet of retail per capita, or 3x what Britain has. We have about 50% more than Canada. So we're going through a rationalization that absolutely makes sense. But stores are going to be around. It's not the stores are dying, it's the middle class is dying. Going to a middle or lower income neighborhood, you're going to see stores being boarded up because the, the households don't have any money. Going to an affluent neighborhood, and I'll show you commercial and retail rents that are, you know, maybe not at all-time highs, but pretty close. Mm. Everyone talks about the death of the mall. Show me a mall in Short Hills, a Costa Mesa, you know, downtown here. They're fine. Show me a mall in the suburbs, in a middle-income neighborhood or a low-income neighborhood. They're struggling. Stores are key to a retailer's strategy. I, was pre- I predicted for a long time that Amazon would either buy or open stores. And finally, I was vindicated, and they were right. <laughs> Pure Play e commerce is not a sustainable business model, full stop. So I'll challenge you name a successful Pure Play e commerce company. Exciting, huge, yeah. the future. Name one. Yeah. Name one. Who's killing it? It's hard, right? Yeah. I can name a lot of brick and mortar retailers that are killing it right. Home Depot, Sephora. I can go on and on and on. But for all the attention and oxygen e commerce gets, it's a shitty business. I mean it's a really difficult business. And Amazon has decided they need to be in stores. And if they can't figure it out pure play, who can? So the algorithm is grow fast online because you can you can scale really fast and then go access cheap capital from the venture community and what do you do with that capital you open stores mm-hmm. and you do it thoughtfully and in a disciplined fashion but what warby parker casper they're all opening stores
1: yeah that's what i was gonna say i was, I was thinking it through my, my brain works much slower but i was gonna say casper and then they're doing these these uh these stores Target. now bonobos was the same thing they were doing yeah. they were opening up stores just to try stuff on and you couldn't purchase what was the strategy around brands that do that by the way is that just like appealing to the psychology inventory free
0: stores design within reach tried to
1: do it um, by the way Bono, Bono, I wouldn't argue Bono. Bonobos is successful
0: because it got acquired I'm not yep. sure you could say they're. I would imagine they've never made any money I guess Trunk um, Club
1: similar thing similar acquisition
0: the Trunk Club so the, the, the algorithm for shareholder value in e-commerce was show growth and a competence, and hope you get acquired and yeah. pray you get acquired <laughs> or have access, access to capital such that you can go raise the capital and then open stores but pure-play e-commerce just doesn't work. Stores are still really valuable. 88% of all retail volume still goes through this crazy brick-and-mortar thing called a store. The biggest, the, the, the probably the greatest accretion of shareholder value or the one business decision that created more shareholder value than any decision in history was Apple's crazy, stupid decision to open stores. Yeah. Think about how dumb that was 10, 12 years ago. And spend a ton on it. If, if When Steve Jobs came to his board and said, I've got an idea, stores. <laughs> and this is on the heels of Gateway closing all their stores. Gateway <laughs> used to have stores. Yeah. This is on the heels of we were starting to move into, you know, res- we, we were starting to see that e- e-commerce was exploding, was the future. And here's the most important visionary in technology saying, I got it, stores. And they've invested about 4 or $5 billion in leases in stores where Samsung, their primary competitor, has spent more and more on advertising. You know, who's winning? So the stores are incredibly important. It's sort of biologically, it's the interaction, it's the physical interaction with the brand. And when you physically interact with Apple, it's a great experience with someone who's much hotter than you. When you physically interact with Samsung, you're physically interacting with a guy named Roy on bad lighting in a a bad AT&T or Verizon store. So <laughs> Apple, That's right. Apple's crazy decision around Ford integration into stores was arguably the most value-accreting decision in the history of business. I think in, from the time they opened their first store to now, they've added about a half a trillion dollars in market cap. And I would argue it's not the phone. I think the Galaxy is as good a phone as the iPhone. Yeah. It's the brand, which differentiates the iPhone from the Galaxy phone, and I think the the genius brand move was these stores. It's impossible not to love Apple after going in and out of those stores. I think they're amazing. Well, you
1: talk about it in your book, too, the, the, the value proposition for Sephora in stores and how they give free classes and they have this mobile app experience yeah. where it's just more than going in and purchasing makeup. Yeah. So people no longer go to stores for products. They go
0: for people. They can get products online, more depth, more selection, probably for a lower price, maybe even more conveniently. But if I need, I need to bomb into the store and get something fast, um, you know, stores, are, stores can actually be very efficient, and mm-hmm. a person can help me get it out. Or I need expertise. I need someone to tell me what is the right Kiehl's tea cream to put under my eyes as they're getting darker and darker, right? And I have someone, and you go into a Kiehl's, and they're super knowledgeable and they're super nice, and then they give you a free sample. And you do it in about three minutes, yeah. right? Whereas I try to buy online. I'm still not very good at it. And I'm not home when I get the product. So it's, stores still have a hugely important role. But you got to be clear. you got to have a great experience or you got to have expertise in the store. If you're mm-hmm. just lining up products you know, some online guys can have access to cheaper capital and be able to get it to the consumer for less money.
1: So I don't make predictions. I ask more questions. And this one around you know, the major drivers in sporting goods manufacturing. So we see what's what's coming in, in voice recognition software and us being able to... Ask Alexa or, or Google Home to add to our shopping cart. And you've done plenty of seminars and showed that private labeling, white labeling products, they're going to mm-hmm. serve you what they have and mm-hmm. they create. Um, you've also talked a little bit about how uh, we're moving into more of a brandless world. Mm-hmm. Do you foresee in the short term or even long term a death, or maybe just a large threat to the Nikes, the Oddies, the Unrunners, the sure. New Balances, because if Amazon takes that much of the critical mass and then it just starts doing their own footwear and apparel and serving it through voice recognition software, yep. or is it just going to be huge body shots? So,
0: there are, brands are still going to matter for a long time. It's just going to be, a, they're just going to matter less. And a brand at the end of the day, is a vessel that takes you from a need to the right choice and it it takes you from the unknown to kind of a uh, on a scale of one to ten to an eight when my uh, the only real job i ever had was right out at ucl i worked at morgan stanley (laughs) and whenever we traveled we'd always stay at either the four seasons or the ritz carlton a because someone else was paying but b because the four seasons in the ritz carlton on a scale of one to ten are always i'd say ritz is always about a seven and the Four seasons there was about an eight. There's probably a cool boutique hotel in that city that's better and fits to your exact needs better. But you don't have the you didn't have the time to do the diligence, so you always deferred to the brand, which gave you shorthand to an eight. Now I go into TripAdvisor, I go into hotels tonight, I go into my mm-hmm. social graph, and I find that when I go to London that the Ferndale Hotels are where all these young, cool people hang out that I aspire to be more alike. It has a great gym. It's in the right area. I go on Hotels Tonight. I get it for a great deal. And boom, I have the confidence to book a brand I've never heard of before. People didn't have the confidence. They didn't have the weapons of due diligence they have. What is your favorite brand? Whatever Google tells you at that moment is your favorite brand. So as a result... The percentage of people that can name their favorite brand in hospitality, the percentage of people that can name their favorite brand in retail, in luxury, in beauty has declined between 25 and 50% just over the last five years. Mm. For the first time, people have the confidence to buy an unknown because they can go to the blog, they can go to their social graph, and they can see is this a great brand. Great is breaking through again. It's an exciting time to be industrial engineering, it's an exciting time to be an innovation. Mm. It's an exciting time to have a truly 10x better product. Whereas the algorithm for creating shareholder value post-World War II was take an average shoe, an average sugary drink, an average piece of clothing, wrap it in amazing brand values, more American, sexy, young. Drink this beer, you'll be young and hot. Drink this beer, you'll be patriotic. Drink this beer, you'll be European <laughs> and elegant. Wear this shoe and you'll be more competitive. You didn't win silver, you lost gold, right? I right. mean, these are outstanding kind of hardcore associations. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, I mean, I just think Nike, I just think shoes have gotten a lot better because they have to be. Yeah. They've invested a lot more in R&D and they're starting mm-hmm. to spend less money on advertising. The valerium steel of advertising is dulling. Now, athletic brands are unusual because they have been more immune to private label. You're not buying a Walmart tennis shoe, or not, and not, at least not an athletic shoe. They've invested in the technology. They have made huge investments in uh, spokespeople that are still a really powerful brand-building tool.
1: 70-some-odd percent of Dick's Sporting Goods is private labeled, majority in their hunting section. But, no
0: kidding. Yeah. I didn't know that. It's a, it's a category, at least—so uh, I think of Adidas, Under Armour— And Nike is almost being like fashion companies. Hmm. It seems like they get very hot and they're very not hot. I mean, you recognize probably the only consumer company that outperformed the S&P five years in a row until 2016 that wasn't a technology or a biotech or an outsourcing company, there was only one brand in there. You know what the brand was? It was Under Armour. Under Armour is arguably a a once-in-a-generation brand. And look what's happened to them the last 18 months. They've been crushed. Yeah. Uh, and everyone would have thought, oh, it must be Nike. No, it's Adidas mm-hmm. with their retro stuff. So it feels like that's a bit of a hit-driven business. Now, I, I work with all these brands, and my message to all of them is the same thing. The only way they're going to maintain their irrational margins is if they forward integrate into retail. Because right now, the majority of retail for Nike and all these guys is a guy in a referee outfit with all these brands over his shoulder, <laughs> who's, who's good at what he or she does, not great, and they're going to have to figure out a way to control their distribution. Right. Otherwise, people are going to wise up and say, "Do I really <laughs> need to pay 140 bucks for a shoe that costs 28 bucks to manufacture?" I'll just go on Amazon and I'll let Amazon beat the shit out of these guys until I can get that $140 shoe for 68 bucks. Yeah. So unless the Nikes, the Adidas and the Under Armors can start creating an unbelievable aspirational experience at retail that makes the brands really come to life they're going to suffer because the unbelievable associations and emotions they used to garner with their advertising you know you guys you guys aren't going to be watching advertising mm-hmm. nike's not going to be able to reach you you're just, you're going to skip through the ads you're going to be watching ad you're going to be watching a super bowl ad free pretty soon yeah you'll still see players with the the logos on them but they have got to They've got to move further downstream towards the consumer.
1: That's probably why they're 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 using those athletes on social media and stuff more and more because they know that's where eyeballs are, yep. less traditional television. So if you're lacrosse or that craft beer that Tyler drinks, or uh, a startup founder and trying to penetrate in that in that niche brand um, approach. Yep. You've said best trend is starting your company in a bear market. Um, yep. Is, is the risk worth waiting for or is it just a product of timing and, yeah. and like you either got the product when you're in a bear market and yeah. you're going or what? So uh, it's easy to play on I wouldn't start a company right now, but that shouldn't
0: stop anybody. Yep. But I've started nine companies and I've looked at all nine and really trying to understand I love data. What's, what are the signals or the indicators of what companies have been successful versus not successful? Is it the idea? Is it the team? Is it? And what I found is the only thing I could find is the companies I started – in recession, succeeded, and the companies I started in boom times failed. When you start a company in a recession, office space is cheap. I started L2 in 2010 as we were just coming out of the recession. My office space in New York cost $28. bucks. we are paying 60 for this Jesus. now. I can, the person, my co-founder of the company was a student. I paid her 15 bucks an hour right out of, right out of NYU Stern Business School because the consulting firm she had an offer with rescinded the offer because they we were in the middle of a recession. Uh, and now she makes substantially more money than that. Um, but the ability to imprint the DNA of low cost and scrappiness is possible in a recession, and it's not possible now. You have to have so much money to attract people now in this to just start a business yeah. right now. It's so incredibly expensive. Now, having said that, entrepreneurship is what I would call an affliction. It's not a choice. People who come to me in business school and say, I'm going to go to work for IBM or McKinsey, and then in five years, I want to start a business. I'm like, you're never going to start a business. You're not an entrepreneur. People, You're an entrepreneur. Yep. People are just sort of infected with it. I know kids... You know that kid at the age of nine that was playing doctor and taking people's temperature and just had to be a doctor? They didn't go, oh, Obamacare, I'm not going into medicine. Yeah. <laughs> they, they had to be a doctor. They just knew it. Being a physician is a difficult business in this day and age, but some people are just cursed to be doctors. Mm. Entrepreneurship's the same way. On a risk-adjusted basis, if you're fortunate enough to have a college degree, you are better off going to work for a big company. Big companies are great platforms. When I started at Morgan Stanley, my stallmate, nice kid, uh, we have both. Most people would argue I've been more successful than him. I've taken more risks. A lot of those risks have paid off. Economically, we're in exactly the same spot. He's had much less stress. He's the vice chairman of an investment bank now making really good money and hasn't endured nearly the bullshit I've had to put up with as an entrepreneur going out of business, trying to find people. So on a risk-adjusted basis, you're better off going to work for Amazon or Google or starting your own business. People don't want to talk about that because we romanticize entrepreneurship like I'm some incredibly talented guy. Mm -hmm. Why am I an entrepreneur? Because I do not have the skills to work for other people. And that's not being curt. like, oh, I'm such a leader. I... I can't work for other people. I'm too insecure to work for other people. When I was at Morgan Stanley and they'd go into a room, I'd think they're talking about me. Yeah. Do they like me? Yeah. Are they gonna fire me? Do they know how hard I'm working? I couldn't handle the inse- If there was anyone in the organization making more money than me than I thought I was more talented in, it drove me crazy. Mm-hmm. I couldn't handle it. I wasn't able to foster strong connections. I wasn't politically savvy. And I was smart enough to realize I don't have the skill set to navigate large organizations. If you are skilled at working at a company, it's an incredible asset. So if you can work at a big company, you have the credentials to get into a good big company on a risk-adjusted basis, you know what? You're going to get rich slowly. But you're going to get rich or you're going to get economically secure. Whereas in entrepreneurship, on the front page of every magazine, are the 0.1% of entrepreneurs that have just killed it. And I'm, a, I'm good at what I do, maybe even great, and I'm kind of four, maybe, no, I'm really three, four, three, four, and two. I've had two ties, four times I've been beamed in the face, <laughs> and I've had three companies that have been, you know, modestly successful. And I think I'm really a decent entrepreneur, but we romanticize entrepreneurship. So those of you who are out there, you know you're an entrepreneur, you have no choice, Everyone else, if you're fortunate enough to get a job with a great big company, go to work there. And I, and I hate to say that because everyone talks about entrepreneurship in these romantic terms. The majority of entrepreneurs are immigrants who have no choice. Mm. They can't go to work for IBM. They don't have the opportunities. They don't have college degrees. So they have to open a dry cleaner, and they work their asses off. And they hopefully fall into great economic security and maybe get affluent. But the notion that
1: entrepreneurship is the place
0: where the most talented people should go
1: just not true. Well, Scott, you've, uh, you've packed this podcast with so much information. <laughs> uh, suck we, the oxygen out of the room. It, it was really good. Honestly, the the bid on identifying insecurities and that vulnerability that we talked about at the beginning of the show, even with No Mercy, No Malice, and the newsletter, and all this stuff will be in our show notes for our listeners to find all the stuff and, and be able to download and purchase his book, The Four Insecurities. Are embedded in pro athletes. And, and I'll be the first to tell you, it's similar to an entrepreneur. I happen to fall in both, probably because I'm really insecure you know, in, in, in my abilities. And then that's why sports become that outlet and why a lot of athletes uh, just identify themselves by, by what they do on field or on court. I probably have gotten my, uh, my postgraduate, all of, or if not most of my postgraduate education from your content I recommend it to, to everyone who's listening
0: oh, thanks for saying that it's nice Paul
1: yeah and I appreciate you taking the time
0: I'm happy to do it congratulations on your success and uh, and I think it's, it's it's inspiring to meet young entrepreneurs who are just going after it yeah. and uh, um, you know I'm co- in my next life I'm coming back as you if I had your hair and your <laughs> athletic skills I'd be the junior senator from Pennsylvania
1: <laughs> wow if you enjoyed Scott Galloway and my conversation, please be sure to let us know. Here are two big takeaways for me. Number one, Scott thinks Amazon will be the first trillion dollar market cap company on the planet. However, what we didn't discuss on the show is his caveat in what he said before, almost predicted, and that's that the government might come in and break up the Amazon monopoly before they reach the trillion dollar milestone. Now, number two, this is the biggest takeaway, and it's Scott's advice to millennials, Gen Z's, and the general hungry workforce. To be great, he says, the world does not belong to the big, but to the fast. You want to cover more ground in less time than your peers. And this is partially talent, but mostly endurance. He told us his lack of balance as a young professional cost him his marriage, his hair, and arguably his 20s. But he told us it was worth it. Continue the conversation with us on social media. My handle is at Paul Rabel and Scott's on Twitter is at Prof Galloway. Be sure to listen to future episodes as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with New England Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick, entrepreneur and investor, Gary Vaynerchuk, tennis star, Venus Williams, NFL quarterback, Drew Brees, and many more. You can find all these episodes and more on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, please... Give us a subscribe. There's a shortcut to our show notes, including all of Scott Galloway's links to his social media, his new book, The Four Businesses, and email newsletter. You can find these by visiting suitinguppodcast.com. Quick shout out to our show's sponsor today, Skillshare. Thank you very much. And until next time, thank you, Scott Galloway.